Welcome to the Plane Crash Diaries podcast with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 19 and we're going to look at the introduction of two crucial bits of tech found in all commercial airliners in the modern era. The cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder. As we'll see, 1960 was a big year for both. It was Australia that initiated the mandatory installation of cockpit voice recorders after an accident in 1960. While we'll also probe a mid-air collision involving United Airlines and Transworld Airlines aircraft over New York in the same year. That led to investigators calling for more information when accidents were being analysed. So let's find out more about how these two crucial bits of tech ended up in all commercial aeroplanes and helicopters. The Flight Data Recorder, or FDR, preserves the recent history of the flight through the recording of dozens of parameters collected several times a second. The Cockpit Voice Recorder, or CVR, preserves the recent history of the sounds in the cockpit, including the conversation of the pilots. The two devices may be combined in a single unit. Today, the FDR and CVR objectively document the aircraft's flight history, which could assist in any late investigations if there's an accident. And they built tough, capable of withstanding an impact of 3,400 Gs and temperatures of over 1,000 degrees centigrade. As I explained in the episode analyzing the disappearance of MH370, the Malaysian aircraft, there are now moves to have live streaming of data to the ground and an agreement to increase the battery life when a plane ends up lost over the ocean. The first example of a flight data record is actually pretty old, dating back to 1939, when Frenchman François Roussineau built something called the Type HB flight recorder. In his machine, photographic film was used, which scrolled along recording the main flight information such as speed, altitude and position. Another form of flight data recorder was developed in the UK during the Second World War when Len Harrison and Vic Husband built a sturdy device that could withstand a crash and a fire and keep the data intact. In this case, they used copper foil as a recording system, a bit like the early phonographic recordings. But it took a Finnish engineer by the name of Vijo Hitala to introduce his black box he called Matahari in 1942. She was a famous spy during the First World War. Naturally, his machine collected intel in a way. This box was used in a fighter aircraft test production in Finland. Voice recorders were first used by the United States also during the Second World War. In August 1943, the US Air Force used magnetic wire to capture the interphone conversations on board a B-17 bomber crew flying a mission over Nazi-occupied France. The broadcast was then fed back to the US by radio two days later. So the idea was nothing new, and yet aviation authorities did not move on the concept for another two decades after the Second World War. That's despite a number of commercial aircraft going missing. Indulge me please as I go through a short list. In August 1947, the BSAA Stardust accident, where an Avro Lancaster airliner disappeared over the Andes after transmitting an enigmatic coded message, Stendek. The fate of the aircraft remained a mystery for more than 50 years until the crash site was finally located in 2000. All 11 people on board obviously perished in the accident. I'll be taking a closer look at the story in a future episode after suggestions by two listeners as there was a huge amount of speculation about what exactly happened to BSSA Stardust. Then in August 1948, the Air France Latoquet 631 disappearance where the plane vanished over the Atlantic Ocean. 52 people were on board. That's the worst aviation accident in the Atlantic Ocean at the time. And uh, later that year in December, 
the airborne transport DC-3 disappearance where Douglas DC-3 flying from San Juan and Puerto Rico to Miami disappeared without a trace off the coast of Florida. 32 people were on board. And then a year later, uh, in 1949, in the BSAA star Ariel disappearance, when Avro Tudor 4 disappeared without trace en route from Bermuda to Jamaica with 20 on board. The loss of this aircraft remains unsolved and contributed to the Bermuda Triangle legend. Then in June 1950, Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 2501, a Douglas DC-4 with 58 people on board, disappeared without a trace over Lake Michigan. Body parts were found later, along with some seating and luggage, but the aircraft has never been found, nor the cause. The next year, in July 1950, a Canadian Pacific Airlines Douglas DC-4 disappeared on a flight from Vancouver in British Columbia to Tokyo, Japan, all 37 on board presumed dead. The aircraft never found. January 1979, Varig Flight 967, a Boeing 707 bound for Rio de Janeiro, Galeo International Airport, disappeared over the Pacific Ocean 125 miles after takeoff from Narita International Airport in Japan. The cause for the disappearance remains unknown as neither the six-man flight crew nor wreckage have ever been found. August 1989, Pakistan International Airlines Flight 404, a Fokker F-27, disappeared shortly after takeoff from Gilgit in the north of the country with 54 people on board. The wreckage never found. Then, of course, March 2014, Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, a Boeing 777 en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing with 227 passengers, 12 crew on board, disappeared from radar over the Gulf of Thailand. A wing part was later found in Réunion. I've done an episode on that already. The list is much longer. These are just a taste showing how important tracking of planes has been. The first plane that actually used a flight data recorder was a Boeing 707, which had a recorder installed in the tail section in 1958. The plane was equipped with a five-parameter analog FDR that read pressure altitude, indicated airspeed, magnetic heading, vertical acceleration, whether the plane was climbing or descending, and a microphone which recorded the crew. Data was captured by engraving traces onto a metal foil. Within the recorder were pitot-static and electrical sensors, separate to the aircraft sensors used by the crew. Calibration of the FDR sensors and general reliability of a mechanical recorder were problems for investigators relying on this data. This was purely a test aircraft, and there was no attempt at incorporating the FDR into commercial aviation. It was Australia that became the first country to introduce the mandatory use of data recorders after an accident of Trans-Australian Airlines Flight 538 in 1960 at Mackay in Queensland. That was a Fokker Friendship passenger aircraft, which was on final approach to land at Mackay Airport at night when it crashed into the sea. All 29 people on board died. The flight took off from Brisbane at 5pm en route to Mackay with stops at Maryborough and Rockhampton. The plane, registered as Victor Hotel Tango Foxtrot Bravo, was under the command of Captain F.C. Pollard with G.L. Davis as first officer. Between Maryborough and Rockhampton, the flight was normal. They landed at 7.12pm when the crew received a weather forecast for Mackay indicating shallow fog patches. The pilots then wisely decided to refuel so that the Fokker could divert to Townsville if the fog was too thick at Mackay. Adding to the nine passengers already aboard, seven adults and nine schoolboys joined the flight at Rockhampton. All the schoolboys were boarders at Rockhampton Grammar School, returning home to Mackay for the Queen's birthday long weekend. 
Victor Hotel, Tango Foxtrot Bravo departed from Rockhampton at 7.52pm and climbed to 13,000 feet. Then at 8.17pm, McKay Air Traffic Controller and Mr. E.W. Miskell reported that fog had rolled in and temporarily closed McKay Airport. A few minutes later, Captain Pollard told the tower controller he would hold over McKay at 13,000 feet in case visibility improved. At 8.40pm, the crew reported they were then over the airport. It was a bright, moonlit night with a completely calm sea and two approaches were aborted due to the low layer of cloud on the coastline obscuring the sight of the strip on final approach. A third approach was attempted by 10pm after holding for another hour. Air traffic reported thinning fog and Captain Pollard announced they would begin their third final approach. Air traffic control then reported an updated ground temperature reading but there was no response from Captain Pollard. It was now five minutes past ten at night. Five minutes later, Miskill began the procedure of search and rescue. Five hours later, at three in the morning on the 11th of June, a searchlight-equipped motor launch found some wreckage, including damaged passenger seats, clothing and cabin furnishings floating in the ocean. That was five nautical miles east of Mackay Airport. An Australian Navy ship called the HMAS Wairego was sent to search for the sunken wreckage, arriving the next day, Sunday 12th. At about 20 past 4 that afternoon, Warrego discovered the major sections of Victor Hotel Tango Foxtrot Bravo in 40 feet of water, three nautical miles southeast of Mackay Airport. Salvaging the wreck took two more weeks. A board of accident inquiry was appointed in July 1960. After two more months, allowing investigators time to sift through the wreckage, the inquiry formally began on the 4th of October 1960. The board sat for four days in Brisbane and two more in Mackay before concluding on the 10th of November 1960 and it was chaired by Mr Justice Spicer of the Commonwealth Industrial Court. It was frustrating for families and friends of the victims as the inquiry failed to determine a particular cause for the crash. The aircraft had flown into the ocean for no apparent reason and so the board focused on the altimeter. One possibility was that the static pressure system or altimeter was malfunctioning and not displaying the correct altitude. Another possibility was that the reading of the three-pointer altimeter was misinterpreted. This type of altimeter has individual pointers for thousands, hundreds and tens of feet and is difficult to read. Errors of 1,000 or 10,000 feet were common and because of this, three-pointer altimeters were later removed from service. If human error were the cause, the accident may have simply been the result of a controlled flight into terrain, CFIT. However, many commentators thought this unlikely given the long experience of Captain Pollard. But Frank McMullen, who was TAA's Technical Services Engineering Superintendent and F-27 Project Engineer, assisted in the crash. Eventually, he formed the view that during the third attempt to land, the crew adopted a low flight path, hoping to keep the airstrip in sight below the cloud layer, but were deceived by the difficulty in assessing height over glassy sea and put the left wingtip into the water when they turned onto the runway final approach. It was clear there were too many questions and not enough answers. Technology had to be found to monitor what was going on, and so one of the recommendations made by the Board of Accident Inquiry in Australia was that passenger-carrying aircraft of the size of the F-27 and larger should be equipped with flight data recorders. That wasn't the only crash where investigators would require more information in 1960. The second was a collision on December 16, 1960, when two airplanes collided over New York City. This killed 134 people on the planes and on the ground and is the only accident to have occurred over a major city in U.S. history.
Remember, terror attacks are not counted as accidents. They planned murders. So it was a snowy morning in New York when a United DC-8 from Chicago was heading for Idlewild Airport, which is now known as JFK Airport in southern Queens. At the same time, a TWA super constellation from Dayton, Ohio, was heading to LaGuardia Airport in northern Queens. Due to the weather, the United flight was put into a holding pattern, but the pilot miscalculated the location of the pattern and flew directly into the path of the TWA flight. There were 128 people on board these two planes. Incredibly, 11-year-old passenger Stephen Boltz was on board one of the aircraft and survived, at least initially. It looked like a picture out of a fairy book, he told investigators. Then all of a sudden, there was an explosion. The plane started to fall and people started to scream. I held onto my seat and then the plane crashed. Boltz initially survived by landing in a snowdrift, but the poor child died from his injuries the following day. He had inhaled burning aviation fuel. There were no other survivors. The TWA Super Constellation fell onto Miller Field, a military airfield on Staten Island. The DC-8 crashed into the Park Slope section of Brooklyn at the intersection of 7th Avenue and Sterling Place, scattering wreckage and setting fire to 10 brownstone apartment buildings, as well as the Pillar of Fire Church, the McCadden Funeral Home, and a Chinese laundry, as well as a delicatessen. Dozens of other buildings then caught fire in the explosion. One woman described how she was sitting in her top-floor apartment when the plane crushed the roof. She was called Mrs. Nevin, and she said, The roof caved in, and I saw the sky. Six people on the ground died, including the 90-year-old caretaker of the church and two men who were selling Christmas trees nearby. Firefighting efforts went on for 72 hours. And during the inquiry, it emerged that the United 826 advised ATC one of its VOR receivers had stopped working. ATC, however, was not told that the flight had only one receiver, which made it more difficult for the pilots of Flight 826 to identify the Preston intersection beyond which it had not received clearance. At 10.25 in the morning, Air Traffic Control issued a revised clearance for the flight to shorten its route to the Preston holding point by 12 miles. That clearance included holding instructions, which is a standard racetrack holding pattern for UAL Flight 826 when it arrived at the Preston intersection. Flight 826 was expected to reduce its speed before reaching Preston to a standard holding speed of 210 knots or less, but it was still flying at around 300 knots when it collided with the TWA flight several miles beyond that Preston clearance limit. During the investigation, aviation officials were frustrated by a lack of data, although they did know that Flight 826 was flying too fast because of its analog instruments that stopped at that point. If a CVR and FDR had been installed, the cause would probably have emerged. Watching all this very closely were the Canadians. Trans-Canada Airlines eventually announced in February 1964 that it would spend $1.3 million to equip all its 7080 aircraft with maintenance recording equipment. TCA used a flight data recorder with a 93-channel system covering engines, movable surfaces, hydraulics, and electrical systems, as well as 15 minutes of cockpit voice installed in a safe location in the tail of its DC-8s, DC-8Fs, Vanguards, and Viscount aircraft. The installation cost around $20,000 for each of the large aircraft and $15,000 for the Viscount. Then the United States' first CVR rules were passed in 1964, requiring all turbine and piston aircraft with four or more engines to have CVRs 
by March the 1st, 1967. As of 2008, it is an FAA requirement that the cockpit voice recording duration must be a minimum of two hours following the NTSB recommendation that it should be increased from its previously mandated half an hour. From 2014, the United States requires flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders on aircraft that have 20 or more passenger seats, or those that have six or more passenger seats are turbine-powered and require two pilots. Then, after the Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 disappearance in the Indian Ocean in 2014, aviation authorities now want real-time streaming of data. There have also been calls for the underwater locator beacons range and battery life to be extended, as well as outfitting civil aircraft with the deployable flight recorders typically used in the military. Before MH370, investigators of the 2009 Air France Flight 447 that disappeared over the Atlantic in a flight from Brazil to France urged that the battery life be extended as rapidly as possible after the crash's flight recorders went unrecovered for over a year. So this is still being initiated globally. There are other moves. For example, it is thought that had there been live streaming data on board the Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircraft, it would have removed uncertainty before the 2nd March 2019 Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 accident. The US NTSB has been quite vocal about this. They've also asked for the installation of cockpit image recorders in large transport aircraft to provide information that would supplement existing CVR and FDR data in accident investigations. These could also be placed in smaller planes. I fly with a GoPro most of the time, and this would not be a high-cost item necessarily, although the industrial version would cost in the region of $8,000. The rationale is that what is seen on an instrument by the pilots of an aircraft is not necessarily the same as the data sent to that display device. This is particularly true of aircraft equipped with electronic displays like CRT or LCD. A mechanical instrument panel is likely to preserve its last indications, as with the New York example, but this is not the case with an electronic display. So this would consist of a camera and a microphone located inside the flight deck or cockpit to continuously record cockpit instrumentation, the outside viewing area, engine sounds, radio communications, and ambient cockpit noises. As with conventional CVRs and FDRs, data from such a system is stored in a crash-protected unit to ensure survivability. Some pilots are not really happy with the idea that they're going to be perused that closely with cameras right up against their ears. Well, since the recorders can sometimes be crushed or even lost in deep water, some modern units are self-ejecting now where the kinetic energy causes the device to separate from the aircraft. They are also located with radio emergency location transmitters and sonar underwater locator beacons. And we're much safer now because of these incidents and accidents. Well, that's all for now. Thanks to Martin, a helicopter Air Force chief training instructor in the Middle East, who suggested I take a look at commercial helicopter accidents. And he's not alone. Mike from New Zealand contacted me and says he owns a Bell Ranger, lucky swine. And he suggested accidents involving Super Puma helicopters need a closer look. So next episode, we'll hear about the Chinook crash off the Brent oil field near the Shetland Islands that killed 44 people. That was suggested by Martin. I'm going to try and get him in to talk about that, if possible. And then there's Mike's Super Puma suggestion, which will also feature. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. You can also head off to the Plane Crash Diaries podcast website, which is a bit static at the moment as I figure out what to do with the aging relic. Although the same could be said, I suppose, of the presenter. Well, anyway, 
Till we meet next, aviate, navigate and communicate safely. Goodbye.